Thunder Media. On this edition of Inside Motorsport, we look at the Monaco Formula One Grand Prix. I hope you'll stay with us. Well, it's the weekend that just keeps on giving the last weekend in May. And at Monaco for the Grand Prix was Speed Cafe's F1 editor, Matt Coshin, joining us on the line. Matt, your first experience as a, a working PR at Monaco. Was it everything you expected or is the criticisms about Formula One outgrowing Monaco, the circuit, also perhaps true for all the surrounding and supplementary supports? Yeah. Hi, Craig. Probably yes to both of those. And yes, it lived up to everything that I I wanted it to be and hoped it would be. uh, I first went to Monaco back in 2005 and sat on the hill above Rascas as a fan. Uh, this year was the first time I've been there in a working capacity, and it's it's an amazing event. There is a buzz around it. You know, I was walking through the paddock, and I literally bumped into Fabio Quattararo a couple of times because the paddock is that small. You just can't get past people. So, you know, you've got the glitz and the glamour. You've got the amazing backdrop. Uh, the weather, apart from Sunday afternoon, was just incredible. And then you've got the realization that you've got the world's arguably, arguably most glamorous event and you're walking in the most cramped conditions that Formula One would ever operate in. There's no way that event would happen if you pitched it today, but that it's got history going back to 1929. It, it keeps on living on that history and, and legacy. And, you know, there's a whole Grace Kelly connection from the fifties and that's where it really ramped up. Um, it's an event within an event. It's a place to be seen. It has gravitas like no event that I've been to. I, I went out on the grid on Sunday before the race and you know, just walking down pit lane, walking out onto the circuit, you look around and you think, Center One races here, Graham Hill One races here. It's just it's got that feeling that going out on track in, in Bahrain or uh, or even Melbourne for that matter, you just don't get that same feeling. So yes, it's everything I wanted it to be. But it's also had its unique challenges, just Monaco and the trying to operate on the side of a hill on the uh, on the Mediterranean. One thing that it does normally offer is changing weather conditions. It is the Melbourne of the Northern Hemisphere for motor racing, and we got the out of water late in the race, which spiced things up, and perhaps bad decisions missed out on having a grandstand finish. Yeah, you infer there to to Fernando Alonso and Aston Martin bolting on a set of uh, a set of slick tyres when the rain was really just starting to intensify. The, the tricky thing with the rain in Monaco is that you can look at a radar, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot because it's hemmed in by mountains. The weather system almost gets trapped on the French side of those, and then eventually, at some point, it builds up enough where it just tips over. But it's when it tips over and how much of it tips over and, and how long is it going to do that for, that's why it's so difficult to read. And that's what you know, McLaren's Andrea Stella was telling me about on, on Sunday, trying to predict that because it had been raining in France for hours before it ever reached Monaco. And that was just over the other side of those mountains. So when Fernando Alonso went around on lap 53, it was dry. He pitted at the end of that lap. Two-thirds of the circuit was still dry. 
but the weather had come over the top of that mountain. And by the time he was going up Beau Rivage, it was demonstrably the wrong tire choice. But just, you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds earlier, it was the right tire choice. So I changed almost in an instant. The most accurate data that Aston Martin had to rely on was actually Lance Stroller, Fernando's teammate, who'd been in for a set of intermediates about 90 seconds prior. Everyone else had pitted between Lance and Fernando going in. There was too too close to Fernando pitting to influence any decision. So when Lance went out, Inters were the wrong tyre. When Fernando went out, Slicks were the wrong tyre. It was that close. And had Fernando gone out on, on intermediates, chances are he'd have been significantly quicker than Max Verstappen, who was at that point about eight seconds up the road, 7.6 seconds I think the gap was. Chances are he could have made that up. Obviously, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Red Bull would have obviously reacted and, and covered that off. But we saw how difficult things were out there on slicks. Uh, Max had issues at Portier. He bounced his way along the barrier. Um, somehow didn't damage his car. But And that was another thing. When the rain hit, the issue is all of those that started on medium tyres, which... Max was one of them. Fernando started on the hards. But those who started on the mediums had very little tread left on those tyres. And when you're in that position, you get into rain, you lose the tyre temperature, the tyres turn, again, Andrea Stella is telling me, they, they turn into like plastic. So you've got no grip whatsoever. You can't then generate the tyre temp. So even though on the wet stuff, you've got no grip because you've got slick tyres. When you get back to the dry stuff, you also struggle for grip because you've lost that tyre temp. Uh, so it was an interesting decision by, by Aston to send... Fernando out. In hindsight, absolutely the wrong call. I don't know that he would have won the race. Max still seemed to have the pace, and I imagine that Red Bull would have hauled him in very, very quickly soon after to cover that that risk. So it's that half a lap or so that Fernando would have had to try and clear Max. Could he have generated eight seconds in that time on intermediates versus used, worn, very tired, medium tyres? That's the million-dollar question. Ultimately, it didn't need to be answered, and, and Max hung on. But, uh, yeah, for, for five or six laps there in the latter, I guess, two-thirds of the race, or latter third of the race, I should say, it's it livened up what was otherwise a pretty processional dull race. It is an event, though, isn't it? As much as it is a race, it is as much about who's there, who's in the harbour, and the I don't think I've seen a bigger crowd in and around the circuit at any Monaco Grand Prix, whether this is the Netflix effect of Drive to Survive or whether this is just because people want to be part of what the race is. They're there for the event, not the Formula One race. Very much so. The, the way into the circuit... The, the media car park is actually down beyond the Raskas. So you, you sort of skirt around the, the back of Raskas and then go beyond that, around the corner of the head uh, and into an underground car park. Just getting down there, you'd sit in traffic for 20 minutes just getting through these little roads because not only was there cars ahead of you trying to get to the same place, but there were so many people walking around that you just have to sit and wait for a couple of minutes for them all to cross the road. Um, but it's not just the crowd. You've got the commercial side of things. Monaco 
has its importance because it's turned into a marketer's dream. Uh, you've got the glitz, the ground, where if you're trying to woo a potential sponsor, you take them to Monaco. You're not going to take them to Saudi Arabia or, or somewhere like that. Monaco has that little extra something, the glitz and the glamour and all of that, the yachts in the in the harbour. I was lucky enough to get on the one or two of those over the weekend, and it's incredible. Uh, each night, someone invariably scoots the uh, the horn on their uh, on their yacht, and they just starts off a coffee of <laughs> a glass for about five minutes at various points through the evening, um, which if you stood directly below one on a boat, I can tell you is really quite loud. Um, but it's, yeah, you're right. It's it's the show. It's not just the race. The race is the reason everyone's there, but it's more a reason to be seen to be there. You know, Kylie Minogue was there. In the talent list that I saw, Justin Bieber, I think, was apparently meant to be there. I mentioned Fabio Quattrara, the MotoGP rider. Um, there are a bunch of other musicians, some NFL players, yeah, there are a lot of people. I, Chris Rock was there. I uh, saw him on the grid. Michael Douglas and Catherine. You know, you've got the who's who, A-list celebrities at this event. And when you consider that at the same time, basically you've got the Indianapolis 500 and then people have got the choice. You can go to Indianapolis or you can go to Monaco. People go to Monaco. And what was also fascinating about the race was possibly in the lead-up to it, a lot of teams got some sensational intel on their competitors because cars were being craned off the circuit at uh, irregular intervals. Yeah, you're speaking specifically of uh, Lewis Hamilton's car and uh, it was in practice, wasn't it? And then in uh, in qualifying, Sergio Perez crashing at San Devon, both getting craned up rather quite high I must say um, the, these cranes are not small things they're not the you know they're not the sort of cherry pickers that come and fix the electricity lines they, these things are you know you could make buildings with them they're massive um, and these are they're stationed around the circuit basically because you can't push the cars there's not enough space in most of these places to just push a car behind a wall because in many places it's You've got a footpath width behind the fence, certainly down uh, on the waterfront, out of the Nouveau Chicane and sort of around the back of uh, around the inside of Tabac. So you need a crane to lift the, the car up and then drop it somewhere where there's a bit of flat space. The Sandabot actually goes directly onto a truck. Uh, but in the process of doing that, they've got to lift the things up quite high. In many instances, they move them a long distance as well. But by doing that, all the photographers in the world an extra dollar or two because they got the shots of the new Mercedes floor. But then the, the, the Holy grail this year is the red bull floor. And that, that irked Toto Wolf, Mercedes team boss and Christian Hornham, the red bull team boss that irks them a little bit, but it is part of the game. You know, it's like if you go way back in the day to uh, 1997, when McLaren ran the second brake pedal, uh, a photographer shoved his camera down the footwell and, and got that story. It, it's, part of the game of Formula One, uh, but it's only one piece of the puzzle uh, as well. You've got to understand the flows and the, the concepts behind it to really understand what they've done to mimic it, which is why it's so difficult in Formula One, because then not only do you have to understand it, you've got to be able to reproduce it and reproduce it within the budget cap, all those sorts of things. Uh, but a lot of teams now have a bit of a guide on where to go 
because Adrian Newey and, and his team at Red Bull are the class leaders and everyone has now had a really, really good look at the inside of the the, uh, the Red Bull RB19. And it, it's more a case of knowing that it's there, knowing what it's what is there, that they then can set about thinking and working on, is it something that they need? It, it, it just gives them, it might not give them an answer, but it gives them a question. Yeah, that's you're about to steal, or you did steal the words out of my mouth. It's exactly what I would have said. You know, it's not necessarily a case of it's it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The answer's 42, but what's the question? The answer is more downforce, but what's the question? How do you get to that? that point what is red bull doing differently to the other teams and i've now got that question there so like, why have they done that versus this you know, you've got mercedes versus red bull side by side in monaco you know you, you could put them on the wall and and compare like for like and there will be differences there i'm not an aerodynamicist to really have the uh that expertise but uh, the teams absolutely do. Um, they weren't looking at it on event. Toto Wolf said that they were just focusing on the race, but you can guarantee back in the factory they'll be pouring over those photos because teams employ photographers not just to shoot photos of their car for marketing purposes and for, for press shots and those sorts of things, but to spy on other teams. They, they will send photographers onto the grid and say, we want photos of you know the Red Bull end fence or the the diffuser on the the Alfa Romeo, whatever it might be, they'll get a list of jobs that they need to go and shoot and getting the floor, you know, that'd be at the top of everyone's list when it comes to the Red Bull floor. They've now got that shot, which is one that they probably never expected to get. So yeah, Sergio Perez hurt Red Bull a lot more than just, you know, putting his car at the back of the grid on uh, on Saturday afternoon. Now in the words of Rampaging Roy Slavin, it was Verstappen who got the win. And uh, a lot of people are going, this isn't helping sell our sport. But when you look at the ticket sales, it's not doing it any harm at the same time. This is a point that Stefano Domenicali, the Formula One CEO, says having an individual or a team dominating isn't actually slowing the growth of the sport. People don't tune in. You know, the, uh, us hardcores, we're going to look at it and go, well, it's just another era like it was with Mercedes or Ferrari or McLaren or Williams or whatever. It's just we've just gone into another one of those. But that's not impacting particularly the growth in America. So that's the strongest market at the moment. I've got new TV deals. The social media following is is huge there and growing more rapidly than any other market in the world. So you've got the world's largest economy getting on board. So having a driver dominate isn't impacting that. And you look back, and we all look back now and think Ferrari and Schumacher in the 2000s were brilliant. In a few years' time, we'll look back now, it's still a little bit too fresh. But if we look back at a couple of years' time, we'll think the same of Mercedes and and Lewis Hamilton, because we think that of McLaren at Ayrton Senna. Uh, and if you go back even further, you know, Lotus and Jim Clark and those sorts of things. So what we're witnessing is is a little bit of history. But then if you look below that, the competition that we've got for second, third, and fourth between Ferrari, Mercedes, and Aston Martin, that's quite interesting. It looks like Alpine's buying its way into that as well, which is intriguing. There's a little bit of hero and villain in there as well, depending how you want to, to dress up. And certainly each local media is doing that. You know, obviously we're working to 
to build Oscar Piastri up because one, he's a good kid with bags of talent, but also he's Australian. Uh, the British media are understandably doing that with George Russell and Lewis Hamilton and, and making Max to be the bad guy because it works for their narrative. So you've got all of these stories being told around the world and everyone can find a driver, which is something that Formula One's doing best than it ever has. It's allowing the drivers to have their own personality and brands and play that hero or villain or whatever they want to do. It's allowing those stories to come out. And as a result, everyone can relate to someone and also just engaging like they've never done before. Formula One's now more open. It's more active on social media. There's ways for people that would have otherwise been completely disconnected from the sport to now actually be involved in it in one way, shape or form, be that on social media or on sim racing or, or whatever. There's a lot of work that's being done around just what's happening on sport, on, on track to, pr- to promote and uh, and endear the sport going forward because that's the that's the challenge now it's not just getting the fans they, they're getting them but it's keeping them so that you know the 20 year olds become 40 year olds and and whatever you know keeping that that long-term fan base that's now the key for them and matt one of the uh, one of the things that is drawing a lot of attention i want to know is it a beat up or is it something is there more to it than just a and senior statesman of Formula One just showing that he's got a bit of sense of humour to him, and that is the Alonso foot on the number one step of the dais during the presentations. <laughs> uh, it, it is a beat-up. Um, ultimately, at the end of the end of the Grand Prix, they usually take photos on the podium, and usually they actually all stand on the number one dais anyway. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't read too much, too much into that. Um, it does seem the way Aston Martin is going that it's a matter of time before Fernando gets his next win. Um, it's probably not going to be until Singapore is the next real opportunity that Aston has. But that team, probably not this year, but maybe next year. It sort of reminds me, actually, that team of Benetton in uh, in 1991 and 92. They're there knocking on the door. And then 93 was a little bit of a breakout. And then 94, they were champions. Uh, they feel like they're on that similar sort of trajectory now uh, with Fernando. He's having so much fun. I've never seen the guy this happy and relaxed in the sport. And, you know, I've been around it for 15 years and he's been around it for a few more than that. Um, but he says that this, this year is about the most fun that he's had in Formula One. He had some good years at Ferrari, he reckons, but this is the most fun he's had. And when you look at him, you can, you can read that all over his face. He's a complex guy. There's a lot of politics at play in what he says, but he's still got whatever it is that he's got, even at 41 and approaching 42 years old. Um, I wouldn't read too much into putting a foot on the number one dice, but I also wouldn't put a pass having two feet there a little bit later on in the year. Yes. And perhaps at the next round, which you're heading off to as we speak, it could be one where the crowd will go absolutely ballistic. Uh, Spaniard on the top step of the podium at the Spanish Grand Prix. Or is Catalonia still part of Spain? Always a contentious one. <laughs> yeah, let's not get into uh, geopolitical politics. <laughs> um, yeah, look, the Spanish Grand Prix, I think we're going to see normal service resume there. Monaco highlighted some weaknesses in the Red Bull, you know, the low speed uh, grip when you get to the mid and high speed corners that you see in Barcelona, that's going to really play to the RB19. So I'd expect Max and Sergio 
to really have an advantage. And then for me, the interest going into this weekend is not can anyone challenge Red Bull because I don't believe anyone can, but who will be the second best team? Will it be Aston? Will the new Mercedes actually be a step forward or is it just a deviation from where it was? Um, I suspect the latter. And what can Ferrari do as well? Because I've got some new bits coming as well, apparently. Um, in fact, I'm speaking to uh, to Eric Boulia, not Eric Boulia, <laughs> Fred Vasseur, rather, uh, in uh, in about an hour's time. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what he says because uh, Ferrari obviously made some mistakes in Monaco that probably costed a podium with, uh, with Charles Leclerc in, in qualifying. So, yeah, Red Bull will win. It won't be an Aston Martin weekend in terms of, you know, challenging for top step unless something, you know, think of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton and uh, Nico Rosberg at Spain the other year. What was that, 2016 with uh, with Max going through and taking his first win? Um, short of something like that, you would think it's a Red Bull whitewash uh, and from there on, who really knows? There's a lot of development parts coming. So I think the midfield is going to be a little bit shaken up. It'll be interesting to see just what the pecking order is because this is effectively the start of part two of the Formula One season. Mm. Well, Matt, we appreciate your time once again here on Inside Motorsport and, of course, catch up with all your reports right across this Formula One season at speedcafe.com. Thanks once again for your time. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Inside Motorsport. Until next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.